the evidence has shown us that not only are these the inequities that exist and the fact that people have poorer health outcomes because they are people with disability, but we have the evidence to show if you do, if you take on these recommendations uh, and take these approaches, then you're likely to make uh, headway in terms of you know, addressing those inequities. Hello and welcome to Containness. I'm Larissa Berg, Gender Equality, Disability and Social Inclusion Advisor at the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of country throughout Australia and the Indo-Pacific region. We recognise the continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This episode is the first of a two-part series on disability and health equity. Today, we're joined by Daryl Barrett, who is a technical lead for disability with the World Health Organization in Geneva. The focus of our conversation today is the WHO Global Report on Health Equity for Persons with Disabilities, which was released in December 2022, 10 years after the publishing of the World Report on Disability in 2011. An estimated 1.3 billion people, or 16% of the global population, currently experience a significant disability. The WHO report highlights that while some progress has been made in recent years, the world is still far from realising the right to health for many people with disability. Daryl and I discuss the significance of the report, including some of the contributing factors that lead to health inequities for people with disability, what the opportunities are, and how we should consider moving forward to improve health outcomes and equity for persons with disabilities. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for joining us, Daryl. Uh, so we're just going to talk a bit about the global report on health equity for persons with disabilities, um, which was released um, in December 2022. Yes. Uh, it'd be great to hear a bit more about the significance of the, of the report. The report comes uh, the direct request of member states through a World Health Assembly resolution from 2021. And all WHO member states requested the Director General to develop a report on the highest attainable standard of health for persons with disabilities, and also to update global prevalence estimates for disability. So the report is significant in the fact that it has been requested by countries. Uh, and on top of that, the report is significant because for the first time, it highlights some of the contributing factors that lead to health inequities for persons with disabilities. And on top of that, you know, it's been 10 years since the uh, uh, publishing of the World Report on Disability that WHO and the World Bank uh, released in 2011. So it gives us an opportunity to really look at what's happened in the last decade and, and how we should consider moving forward. So, um, Daryl, can you talk a little bit um, more about the main findings of the global report? Sure. So... There's four real main findings. Uh, well, there's lots of findings, but four key ones to, to highlight. One is that we updated the global uh, prevalence estimates for disability. And everyone will be familiar with the 15% of the global population that experiences disability. 
we now uh, have updated that to 16%. So 16%, which today equates to about 1.3 billion people who experience significant disability. And that, uh, that equals about one in six of us. And so it's a significant number of people. And certainly for the health sector, it's a number that can't be ignored anymore to be able to uh, put on the table and say, when we're investing in health sector reform, we need to make sure that this population group, because they are a significant number, are not left out. So through all the research that we did, and we looked at almost 20,000 uh, different publications, we did consultations in all six WHO regions and at the global level and with uh, various civil society organisations, including representative organisations of persons with disabilities. And through all of that work, uh, in a nutshell, there hasn't been a lot of change in the situation for persons with disabilities when it comes to health. Uh, in the last decade, we see the same sort of issues come up in terms of attitudes of health workers, uh, models of care that are provided, the uh, disaggregation of data, range of different issues still uh, remain today that we saw 10 years ago. What we do see, though, is more evidence on some of those issues. So. Ten years ago, we we had uh, you know a, a handful of information around the situation. Now we have a lot more evidence, which means we have a stronger basis to make recommendations on what needs to change moving forward. Mm. And you talked about the contributing factors to health equity um, for persons with disabilities. What what are those contributing factors? Yeah, so in the report, we, we break down the contributing factors into four main areas. But what might be interesting to highlight first is that the, um, the reason we break down those contributing factors is because the evidence has shown us that there are three really important inequities that are experienced by persons with disabilities. The first is uh, earlier death. So the evidence has shown us that people with disabilities die up to 20 years younger than the rest of the population. We also see that many persons with disabilities are up to double the risk of developing a range of health conditions like cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, depression. Uh, so they're more susceptible to developing these health conditions. And thirdly, we see that the impact of uh, inaccessible environments, they impact persons with disabilities day-to-day -day functioning more than the rest of the population. So these three um, significant uh, health inequities are really important because those inequities are not due to a uh, person's underlying health condition, such as a spinal cord injury or blindness, but they're due to these uh, unjust and unfair um, and avoidable contributing factors. And those contributing factors really come in four broad categories. The first is really social, societal level factors, so stigma and discrimination or governance, uh, governance and, and policy settings. And these contributing factors are really broad outside of the health sector, not just uh, in relation to health, but they impact on people's health outcomes. The second are the social determinants of health. So these contributing factors are things such as uh, poverty levels, uh, access to education and employment, uh, impact of climate change, a range of different uh, determinants will, uh, like for everyone, impact uh, on people's health. But we know that persons with disabilities disproportionately experience those impacts. 
The third set of factors relates to disease risk factors. So persons with disabilities um, are more likely to consume alcohol, are more likely to consume tobacco, are more likely to um, uh, experience obesity. So it's important that, that we're aware of those because we need to be def uh, designing health promotion and prevention activities that are inclusive of persons with disabilities because we know that they are disproportionately impacted. And then the fourth set of factors relates to the health system itself. And this is perhaps the most tangible place for Ministry of Health to start. And so the, the health system uh, factors include things like the attitude of health workers, financing um, packages, models of care, uh, accessibility of infrastructure, a range of different components in the health system. So they're the four main areas of uh, inequities that we break down. And how does, how does that differ for uh, different groups of people with disabilities? So women with disabilities, uh, Indigenous people with disabilities, does that, does that look different? The short answer is generally yes. So um, because what you're talking about is intersectionality and compounding discrimination. So we know that, uh, you know, persons with disabilities are often also, um, they also have other identities. You know, there may be uh, someone who is Indigenous or somebody uh, who comes from a different ethnic background, maybe a woman, maybe a child, maybe an older person. Um, and so there are a range of different compounding uh, factors that contribute to the greater experience of inequity that persons with disabilities have. So in the report, we, we highlight intersectionality and the fact that women and girls with disability are often uh, more disadvantaged and more impacted by uh, some of these contributing factors. Um, in the report, we also highlight people with certain health conditions, such as psychosocial uh, health conditions or mental health disorders are more greatly impacted by the quality of care or the poor quality of care or the negative attitudes that, uh, that some health workers have. So definitely the layering of different, uh, different factors like your ethnic background or um, you know, your gender will also impact on your experience of disability. Mm. Um, I think it's really helpful to uh, way to articulate what this this term we're called intersectionality, which I think sometimes people kind of um, struggle to grapple with what we mean by it. So I think it's really helpful to kind of think about the compounding discrimination, layers of discrimination. Yeah, I, I, let me give you another example, which is also important for understanding disability. So let's imagine that we have two people they have exactly the same health condition. Say they're two people with the same type of vision impairment. So uh, two people who are blind, they are the same age, they are the same gender. One person lives in Canberra, where we're discussing this now, and another person lives maybe in sub-Saharan Africa or maybe in one of the remote islands in the Pacific. So their health condition is the same, their gender is the same, their age is the same but their experience of disability will be very, very different. And that's because of the environment that they live in, the, the other contributing factors. You know, somebody who's living in a city like Canberra will more likely be able to access education, more likely be able to access employment, more likely be able to access accessible transportation, more likely be uh, able to uh, have recourse in terms of addressing discrimination. Not always, but more likely. Somebody who lives in a rural or a remote area of another country um, where there is no um, 
uh, there is no access to education, where there is very limited employment opportunity for people with disability, where maybe there are high levels of stigma because of uh, poor awareness around disability. The same health condition, same gender, same age, but very, very different experience of disability. And that, those factors that drive that experience of disability is what we try and bring out in the report and what governments and health sector partners need to take action on. I wondered whether it might actually be health, helpful to um, talk about how we understand disability, because um, that, I think, helps to really better understand um, those contributing factors. Sure. So one of the things in the report we're trying to do is, is to make sure that ministries of health and health sector partners understand what it is we mean by disability. And often disability is confused as the same thing as a health condition, but it's not. Disability is an umbrella term that relates to the interaction between somebody's health condition like depression or uh, spinal cord injury and certain factors in the environment. Those factors can be, you know, the, the built environment, they can be uh, stigma and discrimination that might exist, but also personal factors like somebody's age, somebody's gender, somebody's uh, socioeconomic or ethnic background. So these three areas, the health condition, uh, personal factors and environmental factors all interact and that's what we refer to as disability and it's it's absolutely important that we understand that because we are not talking about in this report we're not talking about addressing the underlying health condition that contributes to disability we're talking about addressing those environmental um, and and other drivers that uh, that contribute to to poor health outcomes for people with disability Thank you. That's really, I think, helpful to um, paint the picture of what we're talking about. Um, can we talk about, a bit about COVID-19 um, and what the report um, found around the impact of COVID-19 and um, any kind of insights you have around whether that's a bit of a catalyst for change? On the catalyst point, I think COVID has been a catalyst for a lot of different uh, a, a lot of different issues in the health sector. It's been a catalyst for recognising that health security is the you know the flip side of strong health systems, and that's a message that is really clear. We can't have you know we can't have a good uh, uh, health emergency response if our underlying health systems are not up to par. And that's what we've seen. And, and that's why it's so important when we talk about disability, because the barriers or the contributing factors uh, in the health system are long-standing contributing factors that have existed for, for decades. Um, in terms of COVID itself, we know that people with disability during COVID, and COVID is still rife in many countries, uh, during COVID, in those early days in particular, people with disability were more likely to, um, to contract COVID. And this was often due to a combination of factors. Um, often they needed, they may have needed uh, uh, personal assistance and support services, or they may not have been able to uh, obtain health prevention material related to COVID in an accessible format, or, or often they were just left out because they were not respected and valued at a, at a high level. So the transmissibility or the, the, the fact that the, um, the virus was more likely to impact uh, persons with disabilities. Then we saw uh, a second set of factors and that related to the impact of COVID. So when people with disability did uh, contract COVID, often in relation to the underlying health condition, 
COVID was was uh, much stronger and much more powerful and and much more debilitating in persons with disabilities. And then thirdly, we saw that um, persons with disabilities, when they contracted COVID, were more likely to die compared to the rest of the population. And there are only two countries in the world that really disaggregated data in in terms of COVID and disability, and that was the UK and South Korea. Um, but we, we have evidence from those countries of the impact of COVID in terms of deaths among people with disability. Mm. So pretty significant. Do you think that evidence would encourage greater attention to that level of disaggregation moving forward? I would hope so. Uh, I would hope that that one of the upsides of what we've seen in COVID in relation to people with disability is that there's more awareness of the need to prioritise people with disabilities as a marginalised group uh, in, a, you know, in, in our uh, approach to COVID. And, and, you know, and we've seen this, I think there are examples from countries where there have been stronger engagement with civil society to address some of those issues uh, because of COVID. We see countries looking at, uh, you know, developing plans that are inclusive of persons with disabilities because of the impact of COVID. So we are seeing change, but I think it's important to remember that we're, we're working against hundreds and hundreds of years of a particular understanding of disability, a particular approach to disability. And so we have to be realistic in, in understanding how quick things will change. Um, so yeah, things are changing, but they will take some time. Mm. I remember um, when we were early in, in the vaccine rollout and there was these vaccine, vaccine deployment mm. plans that were mm. um, being developed at a national level. And there were conversations around um, people with disabilities being prioritised mm. and often the response was around well, there's not the evidence to suggest that they are at higher mm. risk mm. Um, and I think that I think like evidence is so critically important but it's difficult when the health system or the system at large is not necessarily collecting the information that's needed to provide the evidence in order to inform the decisions. Yeah absolutely we often see a a disengagement on disability or a lack of engagement on disability under the banner of we don't have the evidence. And that just gets tired after a while because, you know, we, it's a catch-22. We need to invest in actions to produce the evidence that we need. And so, you know, it's almost chicken and egg. We know qualitatively of the impact of not doing anything has on the health of persons with disabilities. The other thing that I that I want to say is that this report makes it much harder to hide now. Any health sector player, and this is not just governments, this is anyone involved in, in the enhancement of health services uh, at, a, at a population level. The evidence has shown us that not only are these the inequities that exist and the fact that people have poorer health outcomes because they are people with disability, but we have the evidence to show if you do, if you take on these recommendations uh, and take these approaches, then you're likely to make uh, headway in terms of you know, addressing those inequities. So it's much more challenging for health sector parties to just say, no, we don't know what to do. So when you talk about the recommendations out of the report, can you give us a bit of a snapshot of what, what they look like? Yeah, so we were very conscious of framing the recommendations to fit uh, the health sector. And when I say fit the health sector, we didn't want to create a report that had 
a series of recommendations that might be good recommendations, but are totally disconnected from what ministries of health are responsible for. We know from WHO's work in countries and with governments that there is a big investment to advance universal health coverage. And one of the ways we do that is with investments in the primary healthcare approach. So looking at integrated services close to where people are, looking at action across different sectors and making sure there is real community engagement. So we frame the recommendations very much in line with the primary healthcare approach because that's what governments around the world are investing in. And so you'll see in the report that there are uh, what we've called strategic entry points. And these are these relate to the building blocks of the health system. So looking at things like health workforce or financing or leadership and governance, a range of different areas that governments can take action. And uh, what we've what we've done within those 10 strategic entry points is provided a menu of 40 different targeted actions that governments can take. And those targeted actions are a range of activities that, depending on where the government's at, they can choose to, to prioritise those actions. And to frame it in another way, if a government is making health sector reform, say, for example, in the workforce, they might be updating the curriculum for nurses or for doctors, then what we want to do is make sure that there is disability consideration in that investment, in that reform, rather than having a wish list of other things that might be important in terms of disability, but we need to be integrated with health sector reforms. And the only way we do that is being by being part of those you know, areas that governments are already committed to. And so making sure, for example, that there's disability uh, competency training in the curriculum of healthcare workers, that would make a huge impact uh, in terms of the quality of care that persons with disabilities receive. So it's make, make sure that we marry the recommendations with the reforms that are underway. Mm. Um, and obviously working at the, at the system level is, is critical and key. Um, a lot of our partners that will listen into the podcast um, will, are working much more at a programmatic level. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think you heard... Um, uh, this morning that question of how do we actually do disability inclusion at a programmatic level so for example in they're doing things like um, lab strengthening or um, field epidemiology training um, or genomic testing and, and sequencing so um, you know highly technical pieces of work where they're struggling to see entry points um, I wonder whether you could distill down um, some key entry points at a programmatic level sure so so maybe I'll start by reminding everyone how challenging it is to work on disability inclusion. And that's not a negative, it's just a reality because disability is complex. And the convention says that, so I'm totally protected by saying how complex disability is. Um, and so I think what we need to do is recognise the complexity. Some things will be straightforward at a programmatic level. The, one of the most straightforward uh, areas to work on is physical infrastructure. Making sure that refurbishments or design of health facilities and even into service design, not of facilities but of services, are designed in a universal manner. That's a really straightforward way to, way to go. Where it does get more challenging are areas like research or, as you said, sort of genomic testing or, you know, some of the even even looking at um, how we might integrate disability into a uh, antimicrobial resistance AMR program. Where where do you start with that? 
And so there's a couple of ways that you can easily start with working at, at, uh, at those, in those tricky areas. One is to make sure that the end user is not a cookie, a cookie cutter type, uh, type model and that we consider some of the different barriers that people or the factors that people might experience. And a way to understand that better is by partnering with organizations of persons with disabilities. We keep saying that uh, quite often, but it is one of the cornerstones of understanding how to make impact, particularly in these tricky program areas like AMR. Making sure that the program or whoever's leading uh, on AMR is actually consulting with end users that include persons with disabilities. And so having that engagement will help the program designers and monitors and implementers understand the particular issues, but also understand whether there is success. In AMR, it's, it can often be, at, from an individual perspective, it can be even understanding about uh, the use of antibiotics, the use of making sure that Things are taken the way they should be taken. Is that information in an accessible format? You know, do are we making this information in easy read so that people with intellectual impairment can actually understand what it is to stay safe in terms of when to or when not to use uh, antibiotics? And then looking at the workforce, making sure that uh, that the um, health professionals that are prescribing um, antibiotics actually are doing so in an inclusive manner for persons with disabilities. So in terms of some of those tricky areas, it's starting with the end user in mind, and that can either be dealt with by consultation or it can be done through you know, how we communicate some of the, some of the services that we need to do. So it is, it is going to depend exactly on what, what program we're looking at, but there's always a way forward, always. Thanks, Sarah. I, I'm interested in the report. It, it talks about the economic argument for disability inclusion. Um, I think that would be, it'd be interesting just to um, dive in a little bit deeper as to what that argument is um, and uh, I guess how we can kind of leverage that. Yeah, sure. Uh, so in the report, we, uh, we include some economic analysis because we engaged um, both internally and, and ec economists external to WHO to look at the uh, return on investment for taking a disability inclusive approach in certain health interventions. Now, this is, not, this is taking nothing away from uh, an individual's right to health and right to the highest attainable standard of health. That goes without saying, it's my right to, to get the health services I need. But the reality is there is a prevailing narrative in disability that it always just costs money to provide services and it's expensive or it's a luxury thing to do for high income countries and we can't afford to do that. So this economic analysis hopefully starts to turn that on its head and say, well, hang on a minute. Um, if we, if we undertake these uh, um, health interventions in a disability-inclusive manner, it could return a significant uh, 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 amount back into uh, our investment. And what we've seen, what we've done is we've looked at some existing uh, studies on return on investment for things such as non-communicable disease prevention and, and treatment, cancer care and treatment, uh, and also looking at um, family planning and immunisation. And in the report, we show that uh, an investment of $1 for um, non-communicable disease 
interventions that are inclusive of persons with disabilities could return up to ten dollars uh, in in you know coming back for the government for that investment, and that's really essential that we start to look at those analysis because again we have the evidence to, to show that it's uh, it's actually economically viable to invest in a disability inclusive approach rather than being attached to the narrative that says oh it's just money just flows in a one-way street so it's uh, and it, it's absolutely essential these days when we look at the impact of COVID on government budgets overall but especially uh, health budgets and we look at you know the the global uh, impact of, of different factors that are driving up the prices and cost of living it's it's important that the investments we make in the health sector are smart investments and we show in the report that disability inclusive investments are smart investments. I imagine that that will start to hopefully kind of shift the narrative a little bit on, on how we're approaching those conversations. Yeah, there's, there's more work that we need to do, but this is certainly hopefully the start of more of that economic discussion on, on the importance and the value of investing uh, in disability inclusion. Darrell, you've outlined some recommendations um, out of the report and really helpfully kind of dived into some of the practical programmatic things that some um, some people, uh, some of our partners could be um, thinking about. What's next for WHO? What are the next steps? So we've already started uh, to develop a, a toolkit for countries to implement the recommendations of the report. So what we're focusing on now is the, the dissemination of the report, sharing the report for governments, for partners to understand what this means, you know, what the, what the evidence is telling us, what we should do. Uh, so that's one stream of work. The other stream of work is this toolkit that we're developing. And the toolkit is really a process to take governments through a um, the development of a set of actions, a plan, for disability inclusion in the health sector to address these inequities. And so this toolkit, we're looking at uh, with uh, developing it and testing it in, in selected countries to be able to understand a little bit more of what governments need to do to be able to implement the recommendations. And this will be a process that we are undertaking at least uh, for the next two years, potentially longer, so that at the end of it, we will have a published toolkit, which will uh, be able to uh, share with governments and health sector partners, which will outline a very clear process uh, from situation analysis right through to implementation and, uh, and guide countries through the steps needed to address some of those contributing factors to inequities that we highlight in the report. So that's, that's the ongoing work at the moment. It's an exciting time to be with Yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's good to have the report. Obviously, it's a standalone and gives us a lot to go on, but it's even better now that we are... Uh, taking the report into more of a practical uh, stage, really, and, and working with countries to to implement it and what that actually means in reality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and where can people go for more information? So everything is on the WHO website. Just log on to who.int, and then if you just search for disability, you'll find our landing page and be able to go from there. Yeah, great. Um, thanks, Daryl. You've been listening to Daryl Barrett from the World Health Organization discussing health outcomes for people with disability, and in particular the findings of the WHO Global Report on Health Equity for Persons with Disabilities, released in December 2022. We'll put the hyperlink in our show notes. This has been the first episode of our two-part series on disability and health equity. 
In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Vailani Ramagasal, the co-chair for the Pacific Disability Forum, who will provide perspectives from an organisation of persons with disabilities and discuss some of the experiences that people with disabilities face when accessing healthcare services and their experience of health. I'm Larissa Berg, Gender Equality, Disability and Social Inclusion Advisor at the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. Contain This aims to bring you fresh insights, analysis and updates on what is shaping our region on health. We look forward to having your company on the next episode. Contain This is produced by the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of country throughout Australia and the Indo-Pacific region. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay our respects to Elders, past and present. You can follow us on Twitter at CentreHealthSec.